The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. And today, feeling a bit nervous at the prospect, I want to say something about the Christian faith of our beloved Queen. It was at Christmas 2000 that Queen Elizabeth II began to emerge, in my opinion at least, as Britain's most steadfast and quietly impressive Christian leader. Many of us have forgotten, or are too young to remember, that before 2000, the Queen's Christmas broadcast steered clear of too much overtly Christian content. So, at the time, it was quite a surprise when the Queen said, To many of us, our beliefs are of fundamental importance. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. Since that year, we've come to expect that the Queen will use her Christmas broadcast to make some sort of declaration of her own Christian faith, though, as you would expect, she's always very careful not to appear to be proselytising. So in 2014, for example, she said, For me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, whose birth we celebrate today, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life. A role model of reconciliation and forgiveness, he stretched out his hands in love, acceptance and healing. Christ's example has taught me to seek to respect and value all people, of whatever faith or none. That's very nicely judged not to offend anyone, with the possible exception of the most toxic secularists. But, as I say, that sort of message was largely missing from nearly the first 50 years of the Queen's Christmas broadcasts. And you can't help wondering what brought about the change. I found a couple of interesting suggestions in a very good article by Catherine Pepinster that appeared in The Guardian in 2017. Explanations for these overtly Christian messages vary, wrote Pepinster. Some royal watchers suggest that it was the Queen's decision to use the 2000th anniversary of Christ's birth as an opportunity to speak openly about Christianity. Others saw the hand of George Carey, then Archbishop of Canterbury. Catherine Pepinson quoted Ian Bradley of St Andrews University, who saw the influence of Prince Philip at work. He said, After her very personal account in 2000, she was encouraged to continue because I'm told she received 25 times more letters than usual from the public in response to that Christmas message than others, and she had huge support from the Duke of Edinburgh. But Stephen Bates, a former royal correspondent, believes it was the death of the Queen Mother that changed her. Quotes, She loosened up after her mother's death. The Queen Mother kept a beady eye on her and now she's more relaxed. She expresses more of what she feels. I think this openness about her own commitment is part of it as well. Now, obviously it's difficult and perhaps a bit impertinent to keep speculating about the Queen's faith. After all, we can be pretty sure of the most important thing that she is an unswervingly committed Orthodox Christian. And as Supreme Governor of the Church of England, there's no doubt as to which denomination she owes her allegiance. 
But Anglicanism, as she's no doubt very well aware, is a rather complicated beast. It's a Church of the Reformation, which claims to be fully part of the Universal Catholic Church, and indeed has a hierarchy of bishops not dissimilar to those of the ancient Latin and Orthodox churches. For well over a century, there have been many more than 57 varieties of Anglicanism. It's always been very confusing for visitors from other Christian countries. Some European Catholics have visited Anglican churches and come away quite unaware that they haven't been at a Roman Catholic Mass, and a very old-fashioned and ritualistic one at that. Others seem more inspired by Calvin's Geneva than by Catholic tradition, and still others do a very good impression of a charismatic evangelical American megachurch. The vast majority of Church of England parishes, it should be said, don't resemble any of these extremes. But there are still so many varieties of high, low and liberal that the map of Anglican churchmanship is extremely complicated. Fascinatingly so if you're interested in that sort of thing, which I definitely am. And I have been for a long time too, because I have in front of me a copy of The Spectator, dated 5th of May 1990, whose cover story is entitled What They Believe, Damien Thompson on the Royal Family and Religion. Most of it is devoted, and again the word impertinent comes to mind, to describing the churchmanship of Her Majesty the Queen. Don't worry, I'm not going to quote from it at length, not least because a lot of the prose is rather laboriously pompous. But as I recall, some of my sources were pretty good, and I think what was true of the Queen's religious preferences then is still true now. There's a quote from Dr Geoffrey Fisher, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who crowned the Queen 70 years ago. James Pope Hennessy, who was researching his life of Queen Mary, asked Fisher about the churchmanship of the royal family, and he said, they're all low church, it's because they come from abroad. And I think by that he meant that Queen Victoria was very influenced by the Lutheranism of her husband, Prince Albert. Anyway, I say in this piece, and I think it's still true, that low church remains the best description of the Queen's faith. Not evangelical, no one in her family, to the best of my knowledge, has ever been born again, but the solid, no-frills churchmanship of her father and grandfather. In this tradition, I wrote the main Sunday service is not the Eucharist, but Matins, a Victorian mixture of Cranmerian prayer, a sermon, and lusty hymn singing. It's a service associated with the English upper middle classes, flourishing in cathedrals, public school chapels, and certain country parishes. Now, in one respect, I think things have changed over the last 32 years since that piece appeared. Anglican worship, even in some evangelical churches, is definitely more Eucharistic than it was in the 20th century. I think it's more difficult to find parishes whose main service is what they used to call the hymn sandwich of old-fashioned matins. But that move towards more Eucharistic worship had actually begun long before 1990, and I did come across one very interesting little story when I was researching the article. In 1970, the General Synod came into being. The Archbishop of Canterbury, then Michael Ramsey, wanted every five-year synod to begin with a solemn Eucharist in Westminster Abbey. The Queen did not agree, and the result was, apparently, a pitched battle between palace and synod officials. And my source told me it was hideously embarrassing, but there was no question of yielding. We are a Eucharistic church. The palace had to give way. And just about all my sources told me that the Queen was no lover of Anglo-Catholic bells and smells. Well, you wouldn't expect her to be if her favourite service was Matins. On one occasion, a new incumbent of the chapel attached to Royal Lodge asked if he could wear a chasuble. 
if you like, came the reply from the Queen, so long as it doesn't happen while I'm here. Now, I'm not sure if she'd still say that. After all, chasubles have become so ubiquitous in the Church of England that the supposedly charismatic evangelical Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, is often seen wearing one. And they're hideous modern things anyway that don't look particularly high church. But the fact remains that the Queen takes seriously her coronation oath to uphold the Protestant religion. I doubt that it bothers her at all that for many Anglicans the word Protestant is these days regarded as rather aggressive and unecumenical. For the ever-dwindling band of old-fashioned low-church Anglicans, or members of the Church of England as I think they prefer to describe themselves, Protestantism of a moderate variety, with bishops, is part of England's national heritage. It's part of Scotland's too, but officially without bishops, and until recently its Protestantism was quite fierce. So it's rather telling that when she's staying at Balmoral, the Queen is happy to worship in the Church of Scotland. I don't think most Anglicans would feel comfortable doing that. But perhaps this is the point at which we ought to leave the question of the poor Queen's churchmanship behind, and focus on the fact that, unlike most Anglicans, she worships at church every Sunday health permitting, of course, something that hasn't always been true of Prince Charles, and unsurprisingly certainly isn't true of younger members of the royal family. I don't want to suggest that with the passing of the Queen, and please may it be quite a few years off, Britain will have lost its last robustly Christian monarch. Since I wrote that article, the Prince of Wales has begun to identify much more confidently as a Christian. I notice that he usually refers to Jesus as our Lord. He makes the sign of the cross in the orthodox rather than the Roman manner, something his mother would never dream of doing. And, admirably, he's shown a greater willingness in the British government to draw attention to the disgusting persecution of Christians in the Middle East. So I suppose all I'm really saying is that for British Christians, Queen Elizabeth II will be an extremely difficult act to follow. For me, what makes her Britain's most impressive Christian leader is not so much what she says as what she doesn't say. Her declarations of faith in Christ aren't necessarily more forthright than those of other church leaders. But unlike so many of her bishops, and Catholic bishops too, she doesn't then go and bolt on a facile and invariably left-leaning political message that will alienate half her audience. Also, and here let me issue a sentimentality warning, it's not just what she says, it's the way she says it. It is beautiful to see the radiant expression on her face. I'm sure that many non-Christians are deeply moved when they hear the Queen talk about her faith, or indeed talk about anything, such as where she hides her marmalade sandwiches. She's very old, she's disturbingly frail, but these days, far more than in the past, she's consistently uplifting and inspiring. She has, to use a term first employed by St Paul, a charisma that perhaps eluded her until quite late in her reign. Until the year 2000, in fact, when Her Majesty felt able for the first time to speak openly about the intensity of her Christian convictions. And I don't think that's a coincidence.